Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese senior diplomat calls on the United States and its policy toward China return to a rational and a pragmatic track. China, Japan, and South Korea agreed to resume leaders' summit as early as possible. France and Germany have laid out a set of proposals for reforming the European Union, dividing the member states into four tiers. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Wang Yi, the Communist Party of China's chief of foreign affairs, says the decline of China-U.S. relations is not in the interests of the two peoples or in the interest of the expectations of the international community. Wang made the remarks when meeting with Henry Paulson, former U.S. Secretary of the Treasury and Chairman of the Paulson Institute in Beijing. Wang also voiced his hope that the U.S. policy toward China will return to a rational and a pragmatic trend. Paulson said they welcomed the two countries resuming and maintaining dialogue in recent times, adding both sides should find the right way to get along and establish mutual trust. So to talk more on the meeting and China-U.S. relations, let's bring in Professor Zhu Feng, Dean of International Studies at Nanjing University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Zhu. Thank you for inviting me. Professor, we have recently witnessed a series of high-level interactions between China and the United States, and there seems to be a trend of easing tensions, especially in the economic and trade sphere. How do you view these changes in China-U.S. relations? What do you think has prompted this shift? Yeah, I think the uh, Henry Paulson's you know, visit China is a continuation of the uh, you know, high-level contacts between the both sides. Despite his uh, resignation, that we also know that Mr. Uh, Paulson remains some sort of a very big uh, figure and a very important, you know, uh, voice in the Washington on how the U.S. address its uh, financial and the economic policy. Then this time, I also see it's very, very encouraging because Mr. Paulson's view. Um, sounds very positive and constructive. Mm-hmm. He's really condemned some sort of uh, such a very narrow-minded, you know, China cracking, you know, or China uh, 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 competing, you know, the policy. And uh, instead, he just, uh, you know, proposed some sort of uh, uh, mutual accommodation and the mutual inclusion between the both countries. It also not just serves the American interest at best, it's also well just a contributing to the world peace and the stability. So Mr. Paulson's you know, view uh, also got the uh, very positive uh, reactions from Chinese counterparts. You just mentioned the Chinese foreign minister, Mr. Wang Yi, uh, had a very fruitful and candid talk with him. And Wang Yi also just a very uh, positively, uh, you know, uh, speak, of his uh, views on bilateral relations, I think his view is reasoning and also very uh, well uh, constructing. So from this point, I think the, the continuation of a high-level contact is really a very important, you know, the push on the bilateral relations back to the sound track. But I have to say, it's a still too early to conclude. Uh, dramatic change has happening to the bilateral relations because Washington's strategic consensus uh, remain intact. They want just to have a uh, not just to take to China as the biggest you know strategic competitor, but also just trying to get China hurt, get China uh, you know depressed. So then we still have to wait and see how the things will be going on. China and the United States have agreed to establish working groups in the economic field, including the Economic Working Group and the Financial Working Group. Professor, what do you make of this establishment? How might them promote economic stability between the two countries? Yeah, I think the establishment of such a two uh, working group 
very specifically and very concisely. Uh, focusing on uh, some sort of their you know disputes and even contentious points um, on the both uh, you know the working group is a very positive you know the advancement of the bilateral relations. It's also I think a positive sign that, that Beijing and Washington really not just a talk in empty, but they needed to substantiate their interactions after uh, a come up a couple of rounds of a high-level, you know, uh, dialogue. So then it's a very encouraging uh, trend. We also uh, should just uh, wear the see the things also could have just uh, has a bring the both sides uh, eventually into some sort of manageable uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it's not easy to just, uh, how say, uh, tell how quick and how fast such a uh, such a two concrete you know uh, dialogue group well achieved as I mentioned reason is uh, some sort of a strategic background and even political climate in the Washington DC has dramatically have dramatically changed but the problem is it's also the Chinese conviction where we'll keep pushing where we'll keep you know just a how say uh, asking for, you know, like re-engagement. So then I really hope China's very uh, positive gesture could finally and eventually just to have a good fruit. Speaking of the challenges and the political dynamic in Washington, as you mentioned, the economic working groups are seen by Chinese side as a step forward enhancing mutual understanding and reducing strategic competition between the two countries. But do Americans take the same stance? What do you think is the timing and the reason for the United States to strengthen its economic cooperation with China? Do they have anything to do with economic challenges the U.S. is facing at home? Yeah, good question. I think uh, basically uh, I see the Chinese uh, doctrine behind the, uh, with a renewed, you know, the political engagement is some sort of a Chinese conviction. No matter how the both sides just to compete, that basic nature of our bilateral relations should be getting back to with a mutual understanding and a, and a, uh, and then the win-win. But the problem is, it's a Chinese uh, philosophy of the uh, foreign relations. But to be honest, I don't think it's a philosophy of Americans' foreign policy as well as foreign relations. So then, from this point, you have your 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 question is really very, very uh, relevant. So. Uh, how the both sides could just uh, have to redefine their basic relationship based on some sort of a mutual uh, benefit. Yes, on one hand, we also see U.S. finance getting harder and harder to just uh, decouple from China because China is not just the second biggest economy in the world. China is also a very formidable part of a global you know, supply chain. So leave the China uh, out of the bath. It's uh, American uh, English, you know, slang is not easy and also will be harmful to the U.S. But on the other hand, then when we see uh, from Chinese perspective, we consider our relationship should be just uh, reformulated into some sort of sustainable and persistable, you know, uh, uh, ground. I mean, yes, we can compete on one side, but on the other side, we should still sticking together and uh, raising up our cooperation. So then my question and my suspicion is this. Yes, U.S. probably now is playing some sort of a two-hands tactic. On one hand, uh, if they find anything they couldn't just dispensable from China, then they would will, will like to continue to cooperate with Beijing. But on the other hand, if they find anything they should still you know, uh, uh, ramp up their uh, take, high take and economic advancement. And also could just uh, bring some sort of uh, depression to the Chinese side. Then they will still go along in very American way. So then, yeah, current, you know, the uh, resumption and uh, reestablishment of the uh, dialogue mechanism is finally a big test 
on how serious America's intention is to get our bilateral relations more manageable and more workable. Professor, could you please elaborate more on such behaviors from the United States, even though we see the prospects for cooperation and the importance of mutual trust? The United States has remained assertive on Taiwan question and the South China Sea issues recently and repeatedly challenging China's red lines through actions like arms sales to Taiwan. How do you view such behavior and how should China respond to multifaceted United States? Yes, your question is, is, is very important. So it's the recent, some sort of American high-profile, you know, uh, assertive, you know, the policy over the South China Sea and the Taiwan issue. It's a very vivid description of American's policy, some sort of was a hypothesis. On the one hand, yes, U.S. want this is still... Uh, working with China over a number of the uh, issues, just like the uh, trading, econ- economic, and the marketing uh, relations, and also uh, maintain you know economic, you know cooperation with Beijing. But on the other hand, over those geopolitical hotspots, U.S. still play a lot of a fire. Not just the trying to uh, condemn China in the Americans some sort of uh, such a very vicious manner. But I also want just the how they played uh, high, you know, the uh, provide some sort of the uh, dominators in the East Asia region. So then um, I see a lot of uh, controversy, a lot of uh, contradiction. So from these points, we still have to be very cautious on how U.S. really just trying to, you know, work on a better relationship with Beijing. Professor, last year, we know the National Security Strategy Report of the Biden administration identified China as the country with both the will and the intention to pose the greatest threat to the international standing of the United States. But since June this year, U.S. officials have began to visit China intensively, and communication has become the key words. Under such perceptions and the differences. How optimistic are you on China-U.S. relations in the near future? Yeah, no, I'm not optimistic at all. As you mentioned, what's the uh, National Security Strategy Report? It's Americans' very fundamental, you know, the national security, you know, documents. So when this documents just reveal the U.S. still takes China as the biggest strategic competition, competitor, and also just uh, uh, defining China as the only power in the world today, which has intention and a capability as well to define, uh, challenge the currency international order. It's absolutely the viciously American manner to define China. It's also some sort of a very vivid you know, the uh, uh, revelation of America's real China policy. So then, as I mentioned, the controversy is always there. No one can cover up. No one can just pretend not to see. So that's why I see the U.S.-China policy now is really of uh, some sort of uh, multilateral, you know, uh, dimensions. If necessary, U.S. will just uh, getting very harsh to China. But if they want, they also will just uh, put their hands on China's shoulder. So that's what we need to be highly warmed off. Thanks, Professor, for shedding light on China-U.S. relations and its recent development. That's Professor Zhu Feng, Dean of International Studies at Nanjing University. More to come, China, Japan, and South Korea agree to resume leaders' summit as early as possible. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. 
Welcome back to Road Today. China says it has agreed with Japan and South Korea to hold a summit between the three nations' leaders as early as possible. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin notes that cooperation is in the interest of all. China, Japan, and the ROK held in-depth discussions on the steady resumption of cooperation. They agreed that joint efforts should be made to strengthen practical cooperation in humanities, economy and trade, scientific and technological innovation, sustainable development, and public health. The three countries hope to promote new progress in trilateral cooperation and contribute to regional peace, stability, and prosperity. Comes after an early meeting among the country's diplomats in Seoul, where officials from the three nations all recognize the importance of cooperation and stability in the region. To delve into this, joining us on the line is Tang Jianquan, director of the Diplomacy Studies Center at Hunan Normal University. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. The trilateral summit between China, Japan, and South Korea has been suspended since 2019, primarily due to the COVID-19 pandemic and string ties. What recent developments or changes have paved the way for the recent meeting and the decision to resume these high-level talks? Uh, you know, the situation in Northeast Asia uh, has been on the erosion and the, the the United States, ROK, Japan uh, would like to enhance their military cooperation. So in this regard, I think the uh, trilateral uh, meeting uh, among China, uh, Japan, and ROK, of course, uh, is of great significance to find a way uh, for uh, the three countries to go ahead to have some cooperation uh, in making peace, making stability in this region. So I think uh, it's time for the uh, three countries in Northeast Asia to think about their future, to think about the way uh, for cooperation. The three agreed to revive foreign ministers' meeting and the summit at earliest convenient time. How do you interpret the term at the earliest convenient time? What conditions do you think will lead to the restart of trilateral summit? Yes, I think that such a mechanism or such a, a meeting will give uh, the three countries a very important uh, uh, way to go ahead because we are facing a lot of uh, challenges and uh, opportunities uh, at this moment. So I think the uh, three countries should uh, find a way uh, for the future cooperation. Uh, in this regard, I'm sure uh, the three countries will uh, attach uh, great importance to uh, the cooperation uh, in the future. Uh, you mentioned the urgency of communication between the leaders of these three countries. What's the significance of the trilateral summit and how do you view its importance for the three countries themselves and the regional stability in general? Uh, we have witnessed ups and downs in Northeast Asia, at least in uh, recent uh, one more year, for example, from the uh, May last year, especially after the visit of uh, U.S. President uh, Biden to uh, Japan, to ROK, uh, there are tensions in this uh, area. So if you look at the uh, situation in Northeast Asia, there should be some uh, uh, possibility of uh, uh, tension or conflict even uh, in uh, uh, in this region. So I think uh, the important uh, uh, aspect for the uh, communication or engagement uh, among the three countries is to have some, you know, uh, mechanism or channel uh, to uh, maintain the peace and the stability in this region. It's very important for the uh, three countries in this region. Geopolitical factors are believed played a crucial role in the recent changes of the relations among mm-hmm. the three in recent years, including concerns about the U.S. alliance with Tokyo and Seoul. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you discuss how these geopolitical considerations are influencing the dynamics of these three countries' relations? Yeah, I think this is a, a crucial point for the regional countries to understand the situation uh, we are facing now. For example, the uh military exercise carried by the carried out by the uh united states rok and japan and uh, uh from the 
peace and stability, I think the uh, countries should uh, find a way out uh, for such a dilemma. Actually, uh, the United States would like to enhance the military cooperation and to manipulate the uh, situation uh, or the tension in Northeast Asia for its own sake. For example, the uh, so-called strategy competition with China and uh, the United States has already taken uh, the two uh, countries, I mean uh, Japan and ROK, as uh, a stronghold uh, to engage uh, with China and uh, to have some, uh, you know, uh, military exercise against China. So this is actually uh, reality uh, we are facing now. Recent report from the World Intellectual Property Organization's Global Innovation Index suggests China, Japan, and South Korea occupy top spots in global index of scientific innovation. Obviously, these three countries have strong advantages in this field. So how do you evaluate the prospects if the three uh, increase cooperation in sectors like technology, for example? Yeah, there are a lot of complementarities in uh, for example, economic cooperation and financial cooperation and also uh, security cooperation in this region. If you uh, and, uh, uh, look at the evolution of the uh, situation in Northeast Asia, you can find such uh, importance. For example, if the three countries can go ahead together, uh, for example, in dealing with uh, uh, the common challenges, for example, the financial crisis or the uh, COVID-19, I'm sure, uh, the three countries can enjoy the you know, uh, opportunity uh, to enhance their you know, economy and uh, to uh, develop a, a social uh, you know, social life. So I think uh, there are some lessons we can learn from the history and we can go ahead uh, for the uh, sake of the uh, peace development in this region. Strengthen cooperation for win-win development. Many experts believe this is the last thing Washington wants to see. The three countries become a combined development force. Uh, what do you think of such comment? Yeah, this is actually a policy adopted by the United States, as we discussed just now, to you know, enhance the military cooperation as a bloc or a small group in this region, for example. Uh, the recent uh, wrapped up the uh, summit uh, among the three uh, uh, countries, uh, I mean, uh, in the United States uh, on 18 August, they would like to enhance the military cooperation and they would like to take China as a competitor. And such a policy actually has already you know, uh, divided the uh, regional uh, you know, integrity and the regional cooperation. So I think uh, the United States cannot uh, uh, give any you know, uh, positive uh, impact on the situation in Northeast Asia. They can, the United States can uh, you know, uh, do some you know, negative uh, you know, impact on the uh, peace, stability, and uh, development uh, of the region uh, only for its own sake. So I think uh, the regional countries, especially ROK and Japan should be very cautious uh, to go uh, with the United States or, or not uh, to take side with any uh, major power. That should be the most uh, important and uh, the, the good policy for Japan and for ROK. Thanks for providing valuable insights into the current state of relations among China, South Korea, and Japan. That's Tong Jianchun, Director for the Diplomacy Studies Center at Hunan Normal University. More to come, China's upcoming holiday expected to spark the biggest boom for the Chinese outbound tourism since the pandemic. This is World Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to World Today with Mika Anna in Beijing.
Tour reservations and advanced bookings of hotels and homestays have been surging in China. The National Day holiday and the Midterm Festival are combined into one long break this year. The holiday season lasting eight days starting from Friday is a great opportunity for traveling or celebrating family reunions. Travel agencies said the holiday is expected to spark the biggest boom for Chinese outbound tourism since the pandemic. It's estimated that the volume of outbound tourism will surpass the level of 2019 during this holiday. So for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novanark Technologies. So Jiahe, first of all, tell us more about the National Day holiday tourism and consumption. How do you see the trend this year? Well, when we look at the tourism industry, it has actually been growing gradually over the well over the past ten months, ever since the you know the the COVID policies has been removed, and we we have seen this tourism industry gradually recovering. You know, in the first May Day holiday, we thought, well, okay, there are quite many tourists when we look at the market, and later on, when we got to summer, which is a traditional uh, you know China's uh, tourism season because the, the the kids are having their holidays, so parents take them out, uh, and when we go to the market like Sanya or Shanghai and you see so many tourists. I mean in, in Shanghai during uh, the summer holiday, many hotels have been increasing their price by like 30 or 50 percent, some increased by 100 mm. percent. So, so you can see this market has been heating up and now the national holiday is actually coming. I personally expect there will be a very, well, very hot season basically because, you know, first of all, this is a very long holiday. It's like seven days for the national holiday. And that's um, uh, also the middle autumn day, which is very nearby. So many people have just to put all these uh, two holidays together. Um, I, I try to speak to many landlords these days and I say I uh, send you some mooncake and she said no don't don't send that because I'm, I'm going to Japan <laughs> and, and you know people are just taking this like holiday for like 10 or 12 days uh, to, to make a long travel so so we'll see this holiday as pretty big I would say. Mm-hmm. Well apart from traditionally popular destinations such as Beijing, Shanghai, Chengdu many people are seeking out niche tourist areas as a travel destination so how would you explain this shift and what do you think are the reasons behind it? And how might this contribute to the local economies? Well, that's, a, that's a series of questions. Um, the, the reason that people are doing this is basically because, I think because of two things. First, that we're just getting bored of you know, traditional tourism spots. We have been visiting like Shanghai you know, for too often. And it's because of the, uh, the development of China's highway, it's really easy to go to Shanghai. You know? Uh, taking a trip from Beijing to Shanghai, well, I'm in Beijing right now, but if I want to go to Shanghai, I can go there in the morning, have a meeting in the afternoon, come back for dinner, or at least to come back to my home at night. So so you can see, so it is so easy to travel to these traditional uh, places. And many people have just been there too, you know, for too, too many times. And they say, okay, I'm, uh, we're getting bored. So we, we want some, uh, you know, non-traditional, uh, smaller uh, traveling destinations. And another thing is that with internet and live streaming, especially Especially the live stream and short videos, it's now very easy for you to know what's going on in a smaller city, where where to visit these kind of things. You don't have to do a lot of research uh, like traditionally we were doing on uh, web pages. But now just click on uh, you know platforms like Weixin or Douyin and just say, okay, I want to go to this small city. Where should I play? And you'll see a huge amount of short videos. Just watch them through, and you know what to do. So so that's uh, you know these things are really getting uh, much more. Complex convenient than before and you know so so many people are actually going there uh, and to these local economies that that's really a good thing because tourism industry is something that brings you nothing but cash you know uh, they don't require you to invest heavily into plants they don't uh, require you to invest a lot of, a lot into the infrastructure you just have to build some hotels open some restaurants and you can earn money mm. so for local economies that that's pretty a good thing and it really solves out a lot of employment as well and travel agencies said the holidays expected to spark the biggest boom for chinese outbound tourism since the pandemic so how do you see this trend 
Yeah, China's outbound tourism has actually been uh, recovering slower than the domestic uh, tourism. So it's actually lagging behind the domestic tourism industry and it's gradually coming back. So I would say uh, currently um, the domestic traveling has been recovering to around 100% of the you know pre-pandemic level. So it's it's we can say it's fully uh, recovered. But if we look at international traveling, that uh, still takes a while, maybe for next one or two years, but it's a very gradual process, you know, because when Chinese people are going to to countries like you know Europe, America, uh, Southeast Asia, we don't speak the language there, so we need a lot of local guides. And many guys have actually changed their jobs in the past three years because mm. they don't have much income. So you just have to recruit these people back. So that takes time, you know, things like these. I mean, apl- application for new passport because usually a passport expires in like five years. Uh, application for new passport, new visa, all these things takes time. It's, well, it's actually a harder task when you compare this with the local tourism industry. So it's coming back slower. Mm-hmm. And the National Day holiday is a trend, but it is exceptional in terms of the consumption habits because this is a very specific several days that people have an extended holiday. But how representative do you see it in terms of the trend of consumption in China? What about it for the rest of the year? Yeah, I mean, the, the consumption is something that Chinese economy is uh, currently relying upon. It's, it's it's something that we say, okay, the future of the Chinese economy will rely upon. And tourism is a very leading indicator of that because tourism is, um, you know, something um, that that is much easier to pick up, especially when we talk about local tourism, you know, traveling, especially when people have been, you know, staying at homes for like two or three years and now they, they want the traveling. But if you, if you look at other parts of the consumption, they are also picking upward like the uh, purchasing of new energy vehicles, purchasing of computer and a mobile phone. You know, when we look at uh, the, the Huawei's new mobile set, it has been selling, uh, you know, uh, actually surprised uh, everyone. Um, so, so these consumptions are actually gradually coming back and it will be supporting the economy in the next few years. And what's your expectation for this year's travel growth in China? How do you think the tourism can contribute to the economy? Well, the, the very important traveling season will be this national holiday, and we can expect the data. I mean, that's coming back, uh, coming out in like two weeks' time, so you can see how this data is coming. Um, I personally expect there will be a pretty large increase if you pa- compare the data with not only last year. I mean, last year was a very exceptional case, but if you compare this data with 2019, it should also be a pretty large increase. Uh, and for uh, you know, traveling destinations like Hainan, which is uh, you know famous uh, destination for for the winter time, they will have more tourists coming up in the in the coming few months. So we don't see anything that will stop this trend. And on the policy front, what more can be done to further facilitate the development of China's, uh, you know, tourism and service industry, especially for those uh, private sector? The service industry's jump or recovery is actually good news for the labor market, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the recovering of the tourism service is really um, something critical for the, you know, the, 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 cons- uh, well, the employment uh, thing, because it actually employs a lot of people. I mean, if, if you look at many things, it, it, it differs because when we invest a lot of money into like hydropower, you don't really uh, employ a lot of people. And if you invest uh, a lot of money into infrastructure building, uh, you actually employ most of the male em- employees. You don't employ a lot of the female employee because that's hard labor work. But when we talk about things like tourism service industry, it actually employs everyone. This is very important. It's not only that the service industry and the tourism industry employs a lot of people, but it is actually employing everyone uh, well, with various in aging, the education and everything. You can just find a job there. So, so that's critical for the employment. That's Chen Jianghe, Chief Investment Officer at Novan Orchid Technologies. France and Germany have laid out a set of proposals for reforming the European Union. A panel of experts commissioned by both countries has outlined the structural changes they say are needed to change how the bloc makes collective decisions. One of the main proposed changes would be to have EU membership divided into four clearly defined tiers. Alex Cadiel has details. The European Union is gearing up to welcome eight new members. 
Ukraine, Moldova, Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Kosovo, North Macedonia, Montenegro and Albania could all be set to join the EU in the next decade. But the bloc's most influential member states think reform is needed before new members can be welcomed. France and Germany commissioned a panel of experts to flesh out if and how the European Union's structures should change in order to enlarge. The panel's report envisions a four-tier system of EU membership. The first is made up of the inner circle, those countries which use the euro and are part of the Schengen free movement area. The second adds those members which are part of the EU but don't have full integration and might not use the euro. The third is associate membership, countries that want to trade with the EU, might have access to its single market but not take part in political decisions or have full membership. And finally, the broadest tier is the European political community, which includes all other European countries and meets twice a year. The panel also adopted the timeline set by EU Council President Charles Michel, who said the bloc should be ready to welcome new members by 2030. These proposals are just the opening argument in a debate that will likely rumble on for months here in Brussels. And even if member states agree on how to reform EU institutions, how to adapt existing policies to new members will be yet another long and difficult process. Alex Cadier, Brussels. So for more on the topic, let's bring in Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Hi. What do you see the most significant challenges and benefits of the proposed reforms to the European Union and the EU membership tiers, and how might they impact the dynamics within the EU? As we know, this kind of uh, proposal, uh, you know, raised by France and Germany, uh, according to my understanding, it's a kind of the, uh, uh, you know, product uh, forced by the uh, current situation. As we know, uh, even uh, <coughs> earlier before this, uh, I mean, this uh, session for the European Union institution, the uh, European Commission uh, also listed uh, ambitious uh, goals for, for the enlargement but as we know now, it's not a good time, indeed, for uh, another round of uh, enlargement. Not only because of the uh, Ukrainian crisis, and also according to some, uh, you know, standard or some uh, procedure, uh, I think that uh, most of these uh, candidates uh, not yet finished the uh, process. But of course, I think now it's France and Germany. They try to find out the uh, synergy between their own proposals, as we know uh, earlier before this uh, uh, proposal. Uh, from France, there is a so-called European political community. And also from the uh, German side, there is uh, another enlargement for European Union. So it looks like uh, there are some division between those two major uh, member states uh, in European Union. So now it's just an effort by uh, France and Germany try to find out a consensus or common ground. Certainly, because it's just uh, from uh, France and Germany. So I think uh, during the next debate, there will be some other, maybe uh, controversial from other member states. Professor, the panel of experts suggest that reducing the number of members in the European Parliament is necessary. How do you envision this reduction affecting the EU's ability to represent its diverse member states and citizens? Yes, I think that uh, once there are some uh, more uh, member states uh, in the European Union, once there are more, uh, I mean, uh, participants uh, for other, for some other European Union institutions, uh, there will be, I mean, reform uh, needed. As we understand that uh, not only uh, the members uh, in the Parliament and also how about the uh, policy making process. According to the uh, proposal from a German side uh, before, uh, German uh, uh, leader, uh, you know, stressed the necessary uh, reform for the uh, uh, policy-making uh, process, because especially once there are some more member states in European Union, uh, if there is not any reform for the uh, parliament and also for the policy-making process, so it's out of the imagine that uh, there will be any uh, efficiency for European Union institution. 
The EU Council President Michel has set a target of welcoming new members by 2030. How do you evaluate the feasibility of this timeline? As I also I mentioned before, to to have another uh, enlargement before 2030 is not only the goal for this uh, uh, Commission and the Council, and it's uh, from the last one. Uh, but of course, I think the. Uh, Uh, it looks like now the European Union has some more political consideration about its uh, next enlargement. So, regarding to the feasibility, I think once the European Union side tried to, um, you know, uh, uphold its uh, so-called co-role in the uh, new, perhaps European geopolitical map, I think uh, to have another. Enlargement、uh, uh, will be a kind of an option. So, from this regard, I think if,、uh, maybe the benefit for European Union's uh, uh, the, another round of enlargement is there will be more members and there will be, you know, a, a bigger single market for European、uh, Union, but maybe lower、uh, lower quality for any. I mean, especially policy making or some other process. I think certainly,、uh, once you、uh, once the European Union try to take care some more visibility and、uh, at a price, especially it will pay the price of、uh, low efficiency or maybe more division within the European Union. Then, as the proposed reforms are debated in Brussels, what potential roadblocks or disagreements do you anticipate among member states in reaching a consensus on these changes? I think at first,、uh, firstly, because it's a joint proposal from、uh, France and Germany, I think uh, uh, it will,、uh, you know, have some、um, maybe negative、uh, response from other member states.、Uh, as we know, always for some other、uh, smaller member states, always they are afraid that、uh, the France and Germany will decide everything and a、uh, kind of.、Uh, Dominating role by those、uh, major、uh, member states. Another, I think, the, uh, uh, you know, possible response from other member states is how about the balance between? Because as we know, according to this uh, uh, idea, that、uh, there will be、uh, two category of the、uh, so-called、uh, membership and also partners and also, you know, the part of the、uh, uh, 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 you know community, the political community.、Uh, as we know, it depends on. How about the relations between those,、uh, you know,、uh, candidates and also these、uh, partners with single、uh, member states of the European Union? For example,、uh, for Germany, yes, always the Western Balkan states will be the priority.、Mm-hmm. But、uh, maybe for some other countries, they, especially on Ukraine, maybe they will、uh, think about the possible or potential risk once European Union take、uh, Ukraine inside. So I think there will be some other, maybe more controversial issues once there is a debate about it.、Mm-hmm. Professor, one last question: Beyond the structural reforms, adapting existing EU policies to new member states could be a complex process. Can you outline some key policy areas that may require significant adjustments to accommodate for potential new members like Ukraine from Eastern Europe? Certainly. Once the、uh, uh, European Union side have a more、uh, political geopolitical consideration about it, its、uh, enlargement, I think some、um, you know policy or some、uh, you know uh, uh, standard will go back to a、uh, I mean uh, narrow uh, uh, position. For example, how about this、uh, issue of、uh, political reform? How about uh, uh, this uh, anti-corruption issue? And、uh, how about this、uh, economic standard, especially? The debt and also uh, the uh, uh, you know、uh, the economic structure, especially if we look at Ukraine, the current situation. Certainly, there is a very very big gap between the European Union's uh, uh, standard and also the Ukrainian uh, the, uh, reality. So I think it will give some more troubles or some more、uh, you know challenges for European Union side once it try to. Have some more、uh, new member states at this moment.
Thanks, Dr. Cui, for your insightful opinion. That's Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. A South Korean court has rejected an arrest warrant for the main opposition Democratic Party leader Lin Jae-moon on graft charges, citing insufficient grounds to support the case. But the criminal charges against Lee have not been dropped. The Justice Ministry said the arrest warrant review is an ongoing process, and the court's decision does not imply Lee's innocence. Lee went on a hunger strike for 24 days this month, calling on President Yoon Suk-yeol to crack policy failures, including economic mismanagement, and not doing enough to stop Japan from releasing nuclear-contaminated water into the ocean. So to talk more on the new development, joining us on the line is Dr. Lim Taiwei, professor of Soka University, Japan. Uh, first of all, can you provide an overview of the recent court decision rejecting the arrest warrant for Lee Jae-moon and the specific reasons cited by the court for this rejection? Well, uh, the uh, executive uh, prosecutor uh, of the uh, prevailing uh, government's uh, administration uh, has uh, issued a uh, warrant of arrest uh, for Mr. Lee Jae-myo. And uh, because he is a member of parliament, he enjoys a parliamentary uh, privilege of uh, immunity from arrest. Uh, and uh, But uh, a vote was put through the parliament, and the vote uh, successfully uh, removed uh, his immunity. And therefore, the prosecutor was uh, poised uh, to uh, execute the uh, arrest warrant. Uh, but uh, it was put before a court, and the court felt that uh, there was not enough uh, sufficient uh, uh, you know, justification for his arrest, the uh, reasoning being that because uh, Mr. Lee is uh, constantly under surveillance and public uh, scrutiny, uh, therefore he would not, it would not be easy for him to uh, uh, you know, execute the uh, destruction of evidence, uh, which was the rationale for uh, the arrest warrant. Uh, mm -hmm. Therefore, uh, that's what uh, led us uh, to the events today. Professor, how might this court decision impact Lee's political standing and influence as the leader of the main political opposition party, especially with the national election in April is approaching? Well, uh, he is averting uh, uh, and avoiding arrest uh, for the moment. Uh, therefore, that is a plus point for him. Uh, however, uh, because uh, the parliamentary vote to remove his uh, immunity uh, was uh, passed successfully. Uh, it means that there are members uh, within his party uh, in the parliament who actually voted uh, for his, the removal of, removal of his uh, immunity, which means within his own party, uh, there are uh, groups of uh, factions of uh, uh, parliamentarians uh, from his own party that is opposed uh, to him. Uh, therefore, uh, it would be uh, sort of a, uh, there will be a need for him to uh, sort of uh, convince uh, the rebel factions uh, of the party, uh, those who oppose him and uh, voted against him, uh, that he is uh, uh, sort of suitable to continue being the leader of the party. In the meantime, uh, there is a stand-in uh, person uh, who is now overseeing the party at the moment. We know Lee recently concluded a 24 days hunger strike, highlighting several policy failures of the current uh, administration. Can you elaborate on the key policy issues he raised uh, during his hunger strike and how they have resonated with the public? Well, uh, he has repeatedly uh, labeled uh, the prevailing administration as uh, what he considers, quote and unquote, as dictatorial. Uh, and so he appears to uh, have uh, taken up the mantle uh, of uh, fighting against what he perceived uh, as a uh, sort of uh, a oppressive or dictatorial regime. Uh, and that is the main uh, cause of his, uh, of his uh, hunger strike. And uh, because of this uh, sort, of, sort of his perception that the prevailing administration is, uh, in his own words, quote-unquote, dictatorial, uh, therefore uh, he opposes the... Uh, uh, some of the policies uh, of uh, the government. Uh, so he's trying to rally public support through his hunger strike to show that uh, the uh, president uh, and his administration uh, has overreached 
and that is the main purpose of the strike. Given the recent political development, how do you evaluate the political divisions and controversies within South Korea? How will it affect the overall political decisions on economy, foreign affairs, etc.? Well, uh, the economy is uh, probably uh, of utmost importance uh, for the voters, uh, given that uh, the uh, exports uh, uh, has been somewhat, uh, you know, weaker than uh, than uh, expected, uh, and also uh, the fact that uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, feeling of a perception of a threat uh, coming from the recent uh, uh, what uh, South Koreans. Uh, and their voters perceive uh, as the uh, close cooperation or potential close cooperation between uh, their rival, DPRK, and uh, Russia. Uh, So this combination of internal uh, sort of priority of uh, the economy uh, and uh, also the the, uh, external uh, perception of external uh, geopolitical threat uh, that is posed to them uh, have been uh, at the top of the concern of the voters. And uh, it, it appears that any candidate that want to uh, win uh, the elections, including the 2024 uh, legislative election, will have to convince the public uh, that they are capable of uh, taking up uh, these challenges. Professor, given what I have been talking about, uh, how do you foresee the political dynamics evolving in South Korea in the lead-up to the April national election, and what key issues are likely to dominate the campaign discourse? Well, uh, the uh, most uh, probably the most uh, important uh, issue is uh, how uh, the uh, economy uh, can be strengthened, uh, particularly in the weak uh, global environment, global economic environment how to increase uh, exports uh, uh, from uh, South Korea, and uh, how to sign more uh, trade agreements uh, with other countries. Uh, Currently, uh, what is released from the Blue House uh, is that President Yoon uh, has intention to visit uh, the uh, United uh, Kingdom, uh, and uh, they have also wanted to uh, increase uh, the ties with uh, India. And most recently, in the past few days, uh, President Yoon uh, and his foreign minister have been lobbying for President Xi's uh, visit uh, to uh, South Korea as well as uh, the uh, leadership summit for the trilateral CJK uh, China-Japan-Korea summit. So uh, these are po- probably points uh, that uh, to watch out for in the next few months. Okay, thanks, Dr. Lin Taiwei, Professor of Soka University, Japan. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.